Actually, what we have before us this morning is a, is a very uh, important but difficult study. So the study this morning is going to require some, some energy, the investment of energy on my part and yours, spiritual energy, mental energy. It's going to require us to concentrate. It's going to require us to follow uh, lines of reasoning and, and logic and, and all of those uh, sorts of things in order to get ready for the more serious study of the parables to follow. Because what we're going to do this morning is set the sort of the ground underneath the parables. And that's very, very important for us to do that in order to come to these parables and come away from the parables with a, with a coherent understanding of what they're all about. So we need to work this morning. So are you, are you ready to work? Anybody falling asleep already, feeling the need to stand up and stretch? If that's so, uh, that's okay. You can just kind of go to the back and, and uh, stretch a little and then return to your seat. It's all good. So we're starting this morning with uh, what is commonly known as the parables of the kingdom. The parables of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 13 contains eight parables. Verses 1 through 52 have eight parables. There is an additional parable that is uh, related to us in Mark chapter 4, which would make a ninth that were spoken on that particular occasion. So on the same day, Jesus spoke, as far as the gospel records are concerned, nine parables, eight of which are recorded for us in Matthew's gospel, the verses 1 through 52. And this, uh, this is an important uh, turning point in the book. You know, this whole, we've talked about this over and over again, chapter 12 being the turning point, and it's indeed true. We turned in chapter 12, and we're, gonna, we're going to uh, progress into chapter 13, and there's a very dramatic and there's a very distinct change in the ministry of Jesus that begins here in chapter 13 and runs uh, its way through the remainder of the gospel all the way to chapter 28. So this is an important section. Jesus is going to change his teaching style from this point forward. The way he addresses his friends and his foes is going to be different now going forward. And we need, to, we need to understand that. We need to understand why that's true in order to be able to follow the rest of the gospel as it begins to unfold. So to, to facilitate our, our study this morning, uh, I'm going to, to ask, and I'm going to do it in a question and answer format. I think that's probably the best way to approach it. So I'm going to ask and answer three general questions. Okay, Three general questions about these parables so that we will have a solid foundation from which we, uh, we can return to this chapter in future weeks and examine each parable in greater detail. Okay, So it's foundational this morning. Now the eight parables, just to, to get a little familiar with it as we're looking through it here, uh, the first of the eight parables uh, begins in, uh, in verse 3, second half of verse 3, and it is uh, sometimes it's called the parable of the sower, um, but I think it's more appropriately called the parable of the soils. So that's the first. The next uh, parable uh, begins in verse 24, and it is what's called the parable of the tares and the wheat. So we have the parable of the soils, and then we have the parable of the tares and the wheat. Then we move over to uh, verse 31, and we have the parable of the mustard seed. Parable of the mustard seed. 
The fourth parable is in verse 33. This is the parable of the leaven. The parable of the leaven. Then we, uh, we move to verse 44, and we have the parable of the hidden treasure, verse 44. In verse 45, we have the parable of the, the costly pearl or the pearl of great price or however you've come to know it. Then we have in verse 47, the parable of the dragnet. And then in uh, verse uh, 51 and 52, really 52 I guess you'd say, uh, we have the, uh, the, the eighth parable here, the parable of the householder. Okay, it may not be marked that way in your Bible, but there is another parable there. It is the parable of the householder. So these are the parables that, that Jesus uh, speaks on this particular occasion, and we're going to look at them in, in detail after we have laid some, some ground rules, okay? some foundations underneath it. So let's take a look at these questions. Let's begin with the first question. It's simply this. What is a parable? What is a parable, and how is it to be interpreted? Okay, what is a parable, and how is it to be interpreted? Then we can begin just simply with the word parable. The word parable itself comes to us in the English from a Greek word. It is a, it is a transliteration of a Greek word. It is not a translation. It means they've just taken the Greek letters, and they've attached English letters to them and brought it right over into the English language. So in the Greek, it is a parabole, and it is, it is comprised of a preposition, para, and a verb, balo. The preposition para means uh, alongside of, and the verb balo means to throw or to cast. So inherent within the etymology of the word is the definition, at least at that level. It is to throw or to cast something alongside of something else. Okay, literally, to, to throw it alongside of, to lay it beside of, we could say, to compare. So it means to compare. A parable is designed to compare something. It is an appeal to, uh, from what people already know in, in the, uh, the realm of ordinary life, and then to compare that to a truth that Jesus wants us to know about the spiritual life. So it's taking something that is familiar and common in the ordinary life and using it, laying alongside of a spiritual truth in order to explain and illustrate that spiritual truth. Okay? So parables are fictitious stories, but they are true to life circumstances. They are fictitious, but they are true to life, and they are designed to communicate truth in the spiritual realm frequently having to do with the kingdom. Not always, but frequently having to do with the kingdom. Parables are very important because they they comprise an important part of Jesus' teaching ministry. I read one place, I didn't do the math, but I read one place that about 35% of his teaching is in parables. So if that's a true uh, estimation, then it represents a third of his teaching that is recorded for us in the New Testament is in the form of parables. It is, I think, significant that Jesus is the only New Testament character that teaches using parables. Okay? They are his domain and his domain alone. Now, Mark's gospel and, and uh, this, uh, these parables here in, in chapter 13, the parables of the kingdom, 
are uh, repeated in, in a more abbreviated form in both Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel. Mark 4, Luke 8. So there's some crossover uh, between them. Mark having one that Matthew doesn't include. But it's interesting in Mark's gospel that, that when Jesus tells these parables, speaks these parables in the hearing of his disciples, uh, they don't understand what they mean. And they have to have them explained to them. Okay? They're not obvious and apparent to them right off the bat. And in fact, Mark writes it this way. Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 33 and 34. It says, With many parables, he, that is Jesus, was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable. But he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. And the significance of that, I think, is it it lets us know that that parables are not always or easily understood. The disciples heard them, but they had to have them explained to them in order to understand their meaning. And so that means that, that we're going to need to have them explained too, I think, in order for us to understand their meaning. And that's going to require some effort. They are enigmas. They are enigmas. They, uh, they require significant mental and spiritual energy in order to penetrate them and derive their meaning. One author uh, wrote about them, and, and he said that uh, there is a certain, uh, and these are his words, dark, elusive quality that seems to stalk them. Kind of like that. A certain dark and elusive quality that seems to stalk them. You read it and you, and you understand the natural uh, illustration, but, but the spiritual truth that it's communicating, you, you have to stop and go, huh, huh, I wonder what all that means. Now, through the centuries, they have, um, they have been subject to varying kinds of interpretations. They have been subject to conflicting interpretations, and they still are today. There is not a universal agreement on what they mean. And as, what that means is as we go through them, we're not going to be able to say that we've got the absolute slam dunk, certain understanding of these, and everybody else is wrong. We're not ready to say that. We're going to say that we think this is what they mean. Um, But we're going to reserve the right to come back later as our understanding of the Scriptures grow in uh, months and years to come and and change our our opinion as to what they are actually telling us, okay? So we want to approach them with a a certain sense of of humility, I guess you'd say, to to say that we're not going to pound the pulpit and say that this is the only meaning, the absolute meaning, any other meaning is, is wrong and heretical. Okay, So we're not ready to do that. But we're not going to be in a sea of subjectivity either and just say, ah, oh, nobody knows what it means, so whatever you like, you like. Okay, They are designed for a purpose. We'll get to that a little bit later. Now, historically, there, are, there have been two significant and erroneous ways of understanding them, which we are going to put to rest and say that these are out of bounds. Okay, so we're going we're to declare a couple of boundaries here uh, of understanding parables that are, that are out of bounds and we're not going there and you shouldn't go there. Okay, it's wrong. So the first is allegorizing. 
Okay, the first boundary fence is, is allegorizing. And through the years, the parables have been subjected to an allegorizing approach to them. Now, the, the, to allegorize, what it, what it means is to, is to extract elaborate meanings from all the various parts of the story. Elaborate meanings, all the parts have these very elaborate meanings. And, and to develop doctrinal points based on these elaborate meanings that may or may not have any, any uh, reference to or coherence with the historical setting in which the parables were originally told. So they get lifted out of their context and, and they, uh, they get up on all four legs and they begin to walk. Okay, And um, typically the parables uh, subject to an allegorizing approach are, are, are said to communicate the plan of salvation. That's, that's normally where the allegory ends, is that they, they were communicating salvation truths. So it's a noble desire to communicate gospel salvation truths, and the truths that are communicated are, are typically correct. It's just not what the parable means. Okay, so it's right doctrine, wrong text. Let me, uh, let me illustrate for you uh, this whole allegorizing approach. And uh, probably one of the, the, um, the best to illustrate it from is the, um, is the fourth century theologian, uh, Augustine. Okay, the brilliant theologian, Augustine. And um, he was a great theologian, to be sure, but he practiced an allegorizing approach to the scriptures. And so, for example, for him, the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan. So you remember the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So his explanation of the, of the parable of the Good Samaritan, all the parts take on these important and significant meanings. So for him, uh, he sees Christ as the Good Samaritan. And then he, then he sees the oil as the, as the comfort of good hope. So you remember the man went down to Jericho, fell among thieves, and uh, the guy comes and treats his wounds with oil. So the oil here is the, is the comfort of good hope. And the animal, the, the donkey throws him on his donkey and takes him to the, to the inn, right? The animal uh, becomes the flesh of Jesus' incarnation. And uh, the inn that he takes him to becomes the church. And, and the innkeeper becomes the Apostle Paul. So uh, you can preach a really good sermon when you've got all of that material to work with. It's just not right. It's just not there. Okay, so that's the allegorizing approach that has been historically taken among the parables. The parables have one meaning. Each parable has one meaning. There are parts. The subparts have meanings in support of the one meaning. Okay, that's important to understand. So that's one, one out of bounds is allegorizing. The other out of bounds is what's called generalizing. And, it, and it's been in reaction to the allegorizing approach. And um, what this does is reduce the, the parable to, a, to mere moralism. In which case, the, the details of the parable become irrelevant and, and the parable becomes sort of trivial and just restates a very obvious truth. So, for example, the, the parable of the, of the tares and the wheat is under this generalizing approach just basically said to communicate that Satan opposes the work of God. That's an obvious general truth that you don't really need a parable to explain. Okay? 
So it's more than that. It's more than this generalization. There's more specific truth being communicated than that general practice. So allegorizing is out of bounds. Generalizing is out of bounds. So far so good? All right. So let's talk about some basic principles of interpretation that we need to, uh, to keep in mind as we tackle the parables together. So here they are. The first one is that the, uh, the parables must be interpreted in the light of the historical situation within the nation of Israel at the time they were spoken. They were spoken by Jesus to the nation in a certain context, in a certain situation. And so whatever interpretation that we make of this needs to keep that in mind. Right? And we're going to come back to this point. It's an important point. Actually, when the next question, we're going to circle back and we're going to address that particular situation. So first, they have a historical foundation and we need to keep that in mind. Secondly, uh, redemptive theology was, was rarely given in figurative language. Jesus rarely gave redemptive theology in figurative language. When the Lord spoke of the plan of salvation, he did it in a very plain and literal kind of way so that truth seekers could understand what he was saying. All right? So he wasn't like a, you know, a professional quarterback with a bootleg you know, hiding the football. He kept it right out in the open for people when it comes to how does a person become right with God. Okay? That is not hidden in dark and elusive sayings. In fact, Jesus' message begins, according to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12, with repent, right? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There is nothing dark. There is nothing elusive. There is nothing enigmatic about uh, a, a statement that says you must Repent. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. In fact, it was so straightforward it caused considerable problems among the people. So, redemptive theology rarely given in figurative language. Third, they are stories. They are stories. Because they are stories, it is never a good idea, I would say it's never even safe to use a parable to teach something that is not plainly spoken of in Scripture. They illustrate truths that are important. Okay? But, we need, but, but if the only support we have for a particular doctrine comes from a single parable, I would say we ought to go slow. We ought to go slow with it because it's maybe not true. Okay? Maybe not true or certainly not taught there. Okay? So, so they are stories to illustrate and to, and to teach some additional truth, but, but whatever they're teaching ought to be able to be backed up somewhere else in plain language. Okay? Fourth. Uh, the parables in Matthew 13, and this is an important one, they concern the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Take a look at verse 11. Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Stop there. They concern the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. They do not declare a mystery kingdom. And that's very, very important distinction that needs to be kept in mind. They declare mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Now, have we ever heard the terminology of the kingdom of heaven before in Matthew's gospel? Absolutely. It's all through Matthew's gospel. Okay? 
So they're declaring mysteries about that kingdom. They are not declaring a mystery kingdom. And that's important. Now, what is a mystery? In the New Testament, a mystery is is not a reference to something mysterious, like a a whodunit novel, right? A murder mystery. That's not what it means. It's... um, it's not something that is, uh, that is difficult to grasp. It is something that is, that is a truth that was previously unknown but has now been revealed. That is what a mystery in the New Testament, that's what it means. It is a truth previously unknown but now revealed. Often about the kingdom of God. Often about the kingdom of God. Now, you can, you can see this in, uh, in, in Matthew 13 here in verses uh, 34, 35, where it says, All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. And then check out verse 35. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Okay? So there were... There are truths that were hidden since the foundation of the world that are now being revealed. Okay? A mystery once hidden, now revealed. Therefore, therefore, in light of that, in light of that they, that they are mysteries of the kingdom, they don't declare a mystery kingdom, these parables, and this is important, listen to this, these parables do not unsay what the Old Testament says. Okay, let me repeat that. These parables do not unsay what the Old Testament has previously said. Nor do they redefine the kingdom from the kingdom that John the Baptist preached was at hand and the, and the same kingdom that Jesus then preached was at hand. Okay? The kingdom of heaven introduced in John the Baptist's preaching picked up by Jesus, is the same kingdom of heaven of which new mysteries are being revealed about it. It is the kingdom that the Old Testament had much to say about through the prophets. That is a consistent kingdom. A consistent kingdom. So Jesus is not upending the Old Testament at this point. He's not saying that everything you understood from the Old Testament now needs to be changed. That's not what he is doing. One more. One more for you. The parables here in Matthew 13 do not describe the church age. They do not describe the church age. (laughs) The reality they are intended to reveal includes the church within the time period. But the parables were not given to describe, uh, but they were given rather to describe that period. Okay? So let me say it again. They don't describe the church age, but the reality is they describe a period of time in which the church exists. But they were not given to describe the church. They were given to describe the period of time within which the church exists. Okay? So the church exists within the time period covered by the parables, but it is not identical to the time period covered by the parables. That means that we can draw application from them, but it is only application. 
So let me try an illustration on this, what, this last point that I've just said. Now, hopefully, an illustration illustrates, right? So let's see how this one works for you. When I say that the church exists within the time period covered by them, but it is not identical with that time period. So here in Southern California, we have uh, a 60 freeway. And the 60 freeway and the 57 freeway comes together, right? The 60 freeway exists prior to the 57 joining it, and it exists subsequent to the 57 joining it. Isn't that right? When the 57 joins the 60... For a period of a few miles, they travel together in the same roadbed. But while they are traveling together in the same roadbed, they are still two separate freeways. And when the 57 branches off, the 60, what? Continues. The 60 continues. So, uh, hopefully this works. So this this is the same idea with the church and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God exists prior to the church. The kingdom of God will exist subsequent to the church. For a period of time, the church moves on the same roadbed within this, within this kingdom of God, and then it, later there's a separation. You like that? Hope so. What it means is we can say that the, the church is not the kingdom. But the church is included in the kingdom. Just like the 57 is not the 60, but it is included within the 60 for the time they run together. All right, let me take one more stab at that. And uh, Colossians, you don't have to turn there, you can just listen to this. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. Paul writes, He that is Christ rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Okay? We are placed into the church. The church is running in the same roadbed as the kingdom. By our membership in the church, we will ultimately ultimately be members of the kingdom. But the church and the kingdom are not identical. They are not identical. Okay? We'll come back to this more than one time. All right. So what is a parable? How is it to be interpreted? Second question. Second question. When were these parables spoken? When were they spoken and to whom were they spoken? That's an important question. When and to whom were they spoken? Now, the setting uh, appears for us here in in, uh, chapter 13 in the first three verses. So take a look at it. Matthew writes, That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him, so he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables. Stop there. All right. That day. What day? The day that Matthew chapter 12 narrates. You remember that day. That was a day when Jesus was absolutely overwhelmed with with ministry requests, right? Right? The people were, were flooding him. He was in his home. He didn't have time to eat or, or you know, get anything to drink or to rest. They're just pressing on him and pressing on him to the point where his, his own family and relatives think he's losing it you know, and they need to rescue him. It's the, it's the day in which Jesus cast the demon out of that man and the man is now able to, to, uh, to see and speak. 
And the, and, the, and the power and the magnitude of that miracle is so astounding that the crowds who had become used to miracles are blown away by what they see. It's the day in which Jesus has, is confronted uh, openly with hostility for the very first time. And now let me clarify something I uh, may have not covered well enough earlier. In uh, chapter 9 and verse 34 and chapter 10 and verse 35, it speaks about um, uh, the Pharisees saying he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Those chronologically belong to a later time in Jesus' life. They've been moved by Matthew to that place for his own purposes. So here in chapter 12, the accusation that he's doing the miracles that are, that are done by the power of the Spirit of God, by the spirit of, of Beelzebub, basically, attributing the Holy Spirit to Satan, that's the unforgivable sin. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That confrontation erupts on this day. And the, and the intensity of the conflict is exhausting. Absolutely exhausting. Leading out of it, Jesus pronounces the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Spirit upon those Pharisees and scribes, and then he warns the generation that, that is there to witness this, that if you throw in with them, there remains no redemption for you either. So over and over again, he says, that generation, this generation, right? You are, you're, at the judgment, you are going to be judged very, very severely because you had all this revelation, you chose willfully to ignore it. So as the day progresses, and I think it's reasonable enough to assume that it's now later in the afternoon, and Jesus finally gets out of the house. The crowds thin a little bit, and uh, he goes down to the sea. That's what it says. He went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. I don't know why. Maybe just to clear the fog out of his head. But he goes down to the sea. Capernaum is right there on the Sea of Galilee. He goes down to the sea. But he, he cannot get alone, or at least not for long. The crowds, that's what it says, verse 2, the large crowds gathered to him. The large crowds gathered him. In fact, Luke chapter 8 and verse 4 says that, that a great multitude from various cities journeyed to him. It gives you an idea of the size of the crowds. They're, they're, they find out he's down by the ocean, and, and, or the Sea of Galilee, rather, and, they, and they, they come, they swarm him. And so he's forced to get into a boat, verse 2. And that's what he does. He gets into a little fishing boat, and he sits down, and, and the boat pushes off from the shore a, a short way. And the crowds are just standing there, and he begins to teach. He begins to teach. Why does he get into the boat? Well, because he's being mobbed. He needs a little space, you know, make sure you give me your space. So a little bit of space. Beyond that, it provides kind of a natural amphitheater to, to magnify his voice out across the water to reach the people there on the shore. He begins to speak. And he begins to speak to them. To them. You see it in verse 3. He spoke many things to them. Who's the them? The them, verse 2, are the large crowds. The large crowds. He speaks to them. We see it there in verse 3. We see it in verse 10, to them. 
Verse 13, therefore I speak to them. Verse 24, Jesus presented another parable to them. Verse 31, he presented another parable to them. Verse 33, he spoke another parable to them. Verse 34, all these things Jesus spoke to who? The crowds. The crowds. So what can we determine by this? We can determine by this that that Jesus spoke these first four parables to the crowds. They were spoken to the crowds. Mark includes one additional parable, the parable of the seed, Mark 4, 26 to 29. Uh, That was also spoken to the crowds while Jesus was in the boat. The next four parables, uh, the hidden treasure, the costly pearl, the dragnet, and the householder, were spoken privately to his disciples. Verse 36, then he left the crowds and went into the house. He spoke the next four privately to his disciples only. And he interpreted or explained two of the parables that he had spoken to the crowds. The parable of the soils and the parable of the wheat and the tare. It's, I think, very, very significant to note that Jesus never explained or interpreted the parables that he spoke to the crowds. He merely spoke them and left them hanging. So so pretend you had been there that day. You traveled a long distance. That's what it says, Luke 8. Traveled a long distance to hear Jesus speak. And this is what you heard. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had arisen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. Others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty. He presented another parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, an enemy has done this. The slave said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barns. He presented another parable and said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this was smaller than all the other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in his branches. And he spoke another and said, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until all was leavened. He who has ears to hear, listen. Sermon's over. Thanks for coming. That's the way he left them. No explanations, no interpretations, four stories. He tells them four stories and then be gone. 
be gone. It's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. The people who heard his teaching from the boat, and, and there were, I think, basically three groups of people, they would all hear it differently. He had disciples. They hear it one way. He has his enemies. They hear it another way. And then there's a, a mixed multitude of potential friends, potential foes. And to each group, Jesus speaks the, the same parables, but they're intended to accomplish different things among them. And it takes us to our third question this morning. Probably the heart of it for us, this morning at least. Why did Jesus speak in parables? Why did he do this? You're in good company when you uh, ask that question because it's the same question that was on the lips of the disciples themselves. Look at verse 10. The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Now, this section, verses 10 through 17, uh, chronologically occurs after he comes back ashore from the boat. Matthew has just moved it up in the narrative because of a theological purpose. Okay, but just chronologically, it comes after he has spoken. The question comes after he has spoken those four stories and then said goodbye. And his, and his disciples come to him and they say, why do you do that? Why do you, why do you speak stories to the people and don't tell them what the stories mean? And Jesus answered them, verse 11. Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Isn't that an amazing statement? Jesus is saying, You disciples have been given a gift of God. It's been granted to you to, to know something from these stories. Now, I'm going to have to explain them to you so you'll know it. But God's favor rests on you. You're going to know something that they don't get. They're not going to get it. Why has why this favor been granted to you? Verse 12. Because whoever has. To him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have even what he has shall be taken away from him. See, because you have in faith received and believed the revelation you have already seen of who I am. You're my disciples. You're following me. The crowds and the Pharisees in particular, the Pharisees and scribes that are here, they have refused the revelation. In fact, not only have they refused it, they have twisted it. And knowingly, they have attributed uh, the power that, that enables me to do what I do to the very evil one himself. Therefore, whatever, they, whatever revelation they had about Messiah is going to be stripped away from them. It's going to be taken from them. But you, verse 16, you are blessed 
Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Many of the ancient prophets, many of the righteous men of old, wanted, looked forward to the time of the Messiah. And they never saw it. They died in faith. But you have seen him. You have witnessed firsthand what it means when the kingdom is at hand. You have, you have glimpsed, you have tasted of the power of the age to come. And in faith, you, you are following me. You believe that I'm Messiah. You're blessed. But for those, for those who have seen the same miracles, heard the same sermons, been exposed to the same revelation, and yet have willfully refused to believe, Messiah is going to remove all further revelation from them. He's going to impose upon them a sentence of spiritual blindness. Verse 13. Therefore, I speak to them in parables. Why? So that whatever they think they have shall be taken from them. I speak to them in parables because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. It's a, it's a pronouncement of judicial judgment on the nation. Why did Jesus speak to them in parables? So they could not understand what he was talking about. It was concealed from them. Concealed. As an act of judgment. It's an act of judgment. In fulfillment of the ancient prophecy of Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. We like the first part of Isaiah 6. We use it at missionary commissioning services, right? Who will go for me? Here am I. Send me, right? Then we stop reading right there. When he tells them, I'm going to send you to a people who will not listen. And you're going to proclaim nothing but judgment to them. For how long, Lord, until it's all torn down? If we use that as part of our missionary commissioning services, we probably wouldn't get any missionaries, Right? I'm going to send you out to preach a message of judgment that they will not hear. How long do I do it? Until the whole nation is undone. The portion of Isaiah 6 that Matthew is quoting here is is given to Isaiah in his commissioning service there in Isaiah 6. It was in 739 B.C. It comes with the death of Uzziah, the king who had been 52 years on the throne. The nation had uh, an increasing pattern of wickedness and, and uh, departure from their God. And so the prophecy is given here to Isaiah to speak to the nation and to confront them in their wickedness, their hard-heartedness towards God. 
And, the, and they're going to be torn down. And it's going to take 150 years, but, but the Babylonian captivity is going to come 150 years later, and they're going to be, they're going to be swept away, and the, and the kingdom's going to be removed from them. It's really interesting, I think, because this passage of Isaiah is quoted, these, these two verses out of Isaiah 6 are quoted in full or in part five times in the New Testament. It's a very frequently quoted passage. In full or in part five times. It's always quoted in relation to Israel's rejection of Messiah. That's when it's used. When they reject Jesus as their king, we, we read this prophecy again. It's, it, this prophecy is quoted again. It's quoted in the, in the three synoptic, synoptic gospels. It's easy for you to say. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all in relation to the parable of the soils. It's spoken by John in John 12, after they have refused Jesus in the, in the, there at the beginning of the Passion Week. It is spoken by uh, Paul at the end of Acts, in Acts 28, when he has spoken to the nation there in Rome the gospel of the kingdom, and they refuse it. Then Paul says to them, in fact, Paul quotes the same passage word for word that Matthew quotes right here. One of the reasons, I think, by the way, that Paul had Matthew's gospel under his arm when he uh, did his evangelism work. Why is it quoted? I think it's simply this. Just as ancient Israel rejected their king Yahweh and it led to the removal of their kingdom from them, so too modern, uh, not modern, but you know what I'm saying, first century Israel's rejection of Jesus as their king removes the opportunity for that kingdom to come to them. That's the point. Now all they get is judgment. They have blasphemed the Spirit of God There is no forgiveness for that sin, neither then nor eternally. The kingdom now is being, the offer of the kingdom is being drawn away. It's being drawn away. Beloved, we could could summarize, and let's let's do this. We kind of close this out. We We could summarize the reason for Jesus' use of the parables in relation to the three groups that were there to hear them like this. We have the disciples. They're in the boat Maybe, or on the shore, but in either way, they hear the parables. They have anticipated the, the impending messianic kingdom to come. And it, it is to come with, with political power. That's what the Old Testament says. But something's changed now. It's not going to come. And the disciples are going to need Jesus' special counsel, special teaching to, to ease the shock that comes upon them. I mean, things are still reasonably good on the exterior when you're looking on. There are still crowds coming to hear him. Later, he's going to feed 5,000, and they're going to want to take him and make him king by force. Right? But something has changed within the nation. And the disciples, they need to be prepared for the shock of that change. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit represents a a change in the kingdom message. From this point on, Jesus never again says the kingdom of God is at hand. That was his message. From this point forward, he never says that to them again. It is no longer at hand. 
The disciples need to know that. The earthly manifestation of the kingdom of Messiah has been postponed. In these parables, we'll talk about that. His enemies, they've witnessed his supernatural credentials. They knowingly attributed the power of them to the evil one. For them, they're not going to get any more kingdom message at all. It is going to be completely denied to them. Nothing but judgment. But in the judgment, there's mercy. There's mercy in the judgment. The the mercy in the judgment is by hiding it from them, by concealing it from them, he's not continuing to raise their accountability. The more you know, the more accountable you are for what you know. And so by hiding the truth now from his enemies, it is judgment to be sure, but there is mercy within the judgment. And that is that, that it keeps the fires of hell from getting any hotter for them. And then there's the mixed multitude, right? The mugwumps. You know what a mugwump is? They were, uh, this was, uh, I can't remember which election it was. It was in the early 1800s. But there were, um, there were people that were undecided in a presidential election. They called them mugwumps, right? That means because they had their mug on one side of the fence and their wump on the other. Okay. They weren't sure how to, how to vote. All right? That's what we have here. We have mugwumps. We have the crowds. They're still undecided. They're restless. They're curious. They're easily swayed by the prevailing public opinion. Whoever, whoever speaks the loudest, sort of, they say, oh, yeah, that must be right. And they, they follow that direction. The primary interest in, in Jesus is for the purpose of having their stomachs filled and their taxes reduced. Okay? They want Rome to be thrown off so their tax rate will go down. So all they want is, is food and lower taxes. That's their interest in the Messiah. One writer says they're, they're looking for a holiday and a handout. Okay. It's a crowd. And Jesus is challenging them by these parables. He's challenging them to, to make up your mind about me. If you're interested, come find out the truth. If you're not interested, then you'll be, you know, it'll be a pig to you too. Simultaneously, it's brilliant. Simultaneously, he addresses three audiences with one message. To the receptive, he gives revelation. To the enemies, he gives puzzles. To the curious, he gives challenges, prodding them to make a decision about him one way or the other. And you know, that's, it's true in a way every time the Word of God is opened. Every time the Word of God is opened and read and taught, the, the dynamic takes place again. For those who are, who are receptive, it, it provides insight into the mind of God. For those who have no interest, it's just foolishness. It's, just a, it's a puzzle. It's opaque. It's a story. And for those who are sitting on the fence, it prods them. Make a decision. Make a decision today. Choose one way or the other. 
So the big question is, uh, how did all this strike you this morning? How did it strike you? Are you receptive? Are you hard? Are you still merely curious? Let's pray. Our Father, when the Word of God is read and taught, we encounter you in a very significant way. For your Holy Spirit has inspired this Word and and it ultimately is the teacher. The Scriptures say that the Word does not go forth and return vain. It accomplishes exactly what you've intended for it. And it has gone forth among us this morning, our Father, and there is a decision to be made. Each of us has a decision to make. What are we going to do with it? Are we to receive it, Lord? May you help us to receive it. May you, may you enable it to, our, our palates to be attuned in such a way that it would be sweet to the taste. We'd recognize its nourishment to the soul. Oh, Lord, for those who were hard to it, who've been sitting here for the past hour and daydreaming about one thing or another, Father, may you take the blinders from their eyes. May you unstop their ears, help them to see and to hear, to return and repent and be healed. And for those who have heard it all before, still sitting on the fence, Not wanting to say no to it, but not wanting to say yes either. Father, may you convince them that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to say yes. May they say yes to Jesus. Oh Lord, we pray you would do these things for your name's sake. Amen.